Welcome to a very special crossover episode of Eerie Essex and Folkways. We've teamed up to bring you a Christmas feast of folklore, ghost stories and customs for Christmas. So get comfortable, grab another glass of mulled wine and a mince pie and join us on the darker side of Yule. everyone well uh you can't see our faces but we're currently chuckling to ourselves as we've each got a blanket over our heads um no our central heating is working or mine is just about but we've discovered that placing a blanket over the laptop and our head we get a lovely uh more, slightly more professional sound than we would otherwise because we're just using our computer mics so if at any stage we begin chuckling uh it's just because one of us has caught the sight of uh one of the others or ourselves we look kind of like we're in igloos or little huts or something i actually quite like my tent i've made it very cozy yeah bethan looks like she's in a tree house uh, yeah me and elsa are going for the igloo look and um, my igloo keeps on being attacked by my cat so if you hear some ah casper go away that is my cat trying to dismantle the igloo maybe if you want to join in the feeling you can listen to this podcast under your own blanket so we're feeling really cosy and festive in our <laughs> respective tents and well at this time of year with the night growing long we have an instinct to gather together uh, it being very inhospitable outside there's a lot of time to kill inside so it follows that a premium is placed on those who can spin a good yarn which is uh, one of the themes of today's episode so yes, storytelling takes on an, an especial significance in winter. Um, and even today, you know, we get cosy on the couch. We're searching for endless series on TV to both occupy time, but uh, hopefully as well to entertain us. And with the um, with the dark outside, perhaps uh, trees knocking and, and scraping on the windows, tales with a darker edge, of course, seem particularly appropriate. They're I feel that they're giving voice or form to some of our own fears of the dark, even today. I honestly thought somebody was knocking on your tent and then I re remembered it was made out of blanket. Blair Witch Project comes to Essex. <laughs> we have a visitor already. And uh, Shakespeare wrote in The Winter's Tale, a sad tale is best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. So he's giving a wee link there between the darker season and supernatural critters. But today, that link is perhaps not particularly prevalent. We don't really associate Christmas with ghost stories anymore. And uh, when I think of ghost stories, I think of a festival two months earlier, Halloween. Um, and I expect for you it might be similar. But interestingly, I think this is interesting. The 31st of October, uh, Samhain or Samhain, literally summer's end, 
was seen as, as opposed to some kind of spooky pinnacle, it was actually seen as the gateway to winter. So many of these darker themes would have continued throughout this part of the year. But like I said, in recent times, I feel this has been forgotten a bit. And even today, as we walk through town centres, you see estate agents um, and hairdressers, sometimes absolutely decked out with spiders' webs, and some of them take it really seriously. But the day after Halloween, you see all of all of those decorations chucked back in the loft, and almost immediately, they're replaced with giant candy canes and glittering laughing elves and the whole shebang. It's all really colourful and child-focused, very magical uh, for your child. But as I've just discussed, this is somewhat of a superficial divide. And if we think about the wheel of the year turning, winter is seen as a time of death. The natural world around us is in decline. And for our ancestors, this would have been, it would have been such an extremely difficult time that I think today it can be quite a challenge for us to really um, imagine the consequences of this. With the abundance of summer nowhere to be seen, it's a time of scarcity and of hunger. So it really makes sense that tales at this time would have to some extent mirrored the physical landscape. But whilst we can attempt to relate to a world before electricity, um, before 24-hour shops selling everything you could ever want, Elsa was just talking about how she got a subway delivered and we were marveling <laughs> um, at the modern era. But at, at the same time, I, I don't think creepy seasonal stories should solely be seen as museum pieces. We can still very much tap into some of these feelings today. For example, we still feel the pull to turn inward. And, well, this is quite anecdotal, but where I used to live, I used to live in the southwest briefly, and there was woodland on my way home, uh, which served as quite a significant shortcut of about 20 minutes off my walk. And um, in the summer months, that was all well and good. But as autumn progressed, those woods became less and less and less inviting um, until one day, I, I remember the light was such that I just didn't feel able to go any further. And I didn't, I was, a part of my mind was, um, <laughs> was talking to the other and saying, you know, what what are you really afraid of? I didn't genuinely think there was anything lurking in the woodlands there, but it's not being able to see properly. It's triggers something in our minds, not being able to see behind those trees. It's a very ancient part of our minds, which has evolved to keep us safe. And we should really be thankful uh, for this, as we may not be here today otherwise. I've heard that called a chimp brain. The chimp brain. Yes, the chimp brain. It protects you from, uh, you know, walking through a dark, scary wood where predators might be. Yeah, yeah, it does. It it feels very, very ancient. It's like a, a, a part of you just bristles. And um, yeah, our evolutionary, our knees of the dark is given plenty of fuel with ghostly winter tales. And in terms of the winter ghost story, we often associate them with a kind of commercial Christmas we've celebrated since the Victorian age. But as I've discussed here, they contain threads that are older, darker, and with more fundamental things to the human experience. And I remember in a, in a, psych, a psychology A-level class, I don't know how this came up exactly, but uh, the topic was raised, do we somehow need various monsters and villains as embodiments of some of these very old fears. 
And I think that horror films can masterfully exploit this. And if we think of the woods, um, as I just mentioned, I mean, where, where do we even start? Um, from the Blair Witch to something I rewatched quite recently of the witch, this idea that there are things out there lurking, observing us and potentially we can't see them. I think they stir in us some quite primordial feelings. Reminds me of um, The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. That sort of, I won't reveal the twist because there may be some people out <laughs> it's there. It's been out 20 years. <laughs> I know, but I, I learnt my mistake with that um, Harry Potter quiz I did and I asked a, a certain question about Dumbledore and there's still someone not talking to me about that because I ruined it for them. <laughs> so yeah, no, I won't reveal all. But in the village, the people who um, reside in in the village, they're told of these tales of creatures in the woods and they are told that if they go into the woods, something bad will happen, they might not come back. Now and again, they'll come into the village and leave signs and some of the villagers, the elders, will leave um, offerings for the creatures to placate them. So there's this idea of a boundary between civilization and the wild that I think is in all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even today when we're um, potentially quite cut off from the natural world, I still think, especially if you go out at twilight, you can feel some of these feelings beginning to be stirred again. However, the, the uh, glittery laughing elves I mentioned earlier, we can cut them a bit of slag because what makes this time of year different to Halloween is, of course, the solstice. So unlike Samhain or Halloween, which is that doorway to the dark part of the year, um, this time of year offers hope. And that hope is the longer days soon returning, the rebirth of the sun. So before the conversion to Christianity, that's just what this time of year was all about. And we find most cultures had celebrations around this time of year, the triumphant returning of the sun. And I think perhaps that's what some of this slightly, uh, the eeriness of Christmas potentially comes from. It's such a strange mix. We've got religious iconography, we've got angels with trumpets, mixed with this feeling of liminality, the end of one year, the beginning of a new, the end of darkness and moving into light, um, all the while with dangerous icy weather, candles burning everywhere. I think it's a really fertile time for the, for the somewhat eerie. And in some small way, we hope this episode inspires you, as well as reading the classics, if you perhaps find yourself entertaining relatives with stories you potentially include a few uh, slightly scary ones into the mix just to uh, keep your guests on their toes. So I was thinking of some of the customs we have now and how, just like you were saying, Ashley, they're quite glittery and just thinking of leaving a mince pie and brandy for Father Christmas. And they're all quite sweet and innocent apart from, I'm sorry, Elf on the Shelf is freaky. <laughs> this idea, this thing comes into your house and watches you <laughs> and then we'll go and do some mischievous things in the night yeah someone Creep. i know did that was doing this with their kids and they did a a prank with the elf that made the both children burst out crying and now he can't do his wife has had to take over so he's not allowed to do any more elf on the shelf anymore but it was i mean it wasn't that dark but it was quite horrible Mind well, you, I remember crying sitting on Santa's lap. 
if there's anyone out there who hasn't heard of Elf on the Shelf, maybe one of you could explain it. Yes, it's this, it's come from America, hasn't it? This tradition of um, this little elf that looks quite jolly, got quite a happy little face. And the idea is it turns up on December the 1st. It's been sent from the North Pole from Santa to keep an eye on the children of the house to make sure they still can stay on the nice list. And when everybody's asleep at night, the elf gets up to mischief. Now, I'd like to say that it's probably, it's the elf. It does all these wonderful things, but we all know it's mum and dad. Poor, tired mum and dad who have not got any energy by the time everyone's in bed. But we'll go around and get the elf into these really funny scenarios. So like um, flower on the floor and the elf doing snow angels in it or sellotaping all the other toys to the wall. There's been some quite funny ones, but it's something that's come over in the last, I'd say, three years. I'm not actually familiar with it, so this is really interesting. I mean, I think it's quite dark. It's like the parents using the elf on the shelf to kind of get back at their kids. You can also get elf security cameras to put in their room, which is a whole other level of creep. Mm. That's one of the creepiest things I've ever heard. It's actually creepier than <laughs> creepier than the elf. <laughs> yeah, elf so, surveillance. Yeah. So apart from the elf, which I think we can all agree is quite creepy, Christmas Day was celebrated in very different ways across the country in days of yore. And some of these customs could be quite brutal and cruel, especially, Ashley, you were saying about it being a time of death. Well, they really went to town on that bit. So one of the customs which I find really awful involved chasing animals. So in Glamorgan, South Wales, squirrels were hunted on Christmas morning by both the young and the old. They would find stones and pieces of wood and they throw them at the squirrel as it hopped from branch to branch in an effort to kill it. Most often it would evade its pursuers, but occasionally they won and then would parade it around the village. Lovely. And it wasn't the only place that did something similar. In an ancient custom, which took place in various parts of Britain, was hunting the wren. And this took place on Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day, which is the 27th of December. And was a very cruel ritual which involved killing the bird and then spiking it on a gorse bush and parading it around the village. And in Essex, uh, the writer Humphrey Phelps tells us that the bird chosen was often actually a robin rather than a wren. So the poem goes, the robin and their red breast, the robin and the wren. If you go take out the nest, you'll never thrive again. So it was this idea of sacrificing the bird to bring about plentifulness and good harvest and good luck. A lot of people say that this custom actually comes from the Norse legend that concerns a beautiful enchantress who bewitched men and lured them to their deaths in the sea. And when people tried to catch her, she would turn into a wren or a robin and manage to escape. And they got fed up of trying to catch her and were always escaping and they turned to magic. And a spell was cast on her, compelling her to reappear in the guise of a wren each St. Stephen's Day, whereupon she would be killed. So it sounds a very familiar story. And Elsa, would you mind if I tiptoed out of Essex for this next one? Of course. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a tale from my homeland of Wales. So I really wanted to talk about the Mary Lloyd because it's something I grew up with and was very common in the pubs in South Wales. But when I describe it to people, they look at me horrified. <laughs> and if you see a picture of one or if you Google it quickly while I'm talking, you'll see why maybe. So as Christmas approached, the white skull of a horse was eagerly sought after. And once it was found, it was thoroughly cleaned and then it would be cased tightly in unbleached calico so that it would still look like um, the head of a 
of a horse, a skull, but it would be protected. They would smash the bottom of two black bottles and then the inverted bottoms were inserted into the eye sockets so that they protruded slightly, making them look real. Then ears were fashioned. These would be put upon the horse's head so it was sticking up. Again, I don't know why I'm doing it on the camera because our listeners can't see me doing it, but just for you, Elsa and Ashley. We're really enjoying it. (laughs) (laughs) So they wanted to make the horse seem startled and its nostrils be opened and it would look as if it had smelt something in the air. The skull was then decorated with rosettes and ribbons and a large sack would be attached underneath, which would hide the person holding the skull on a pole so it could be moved around. The oldest man of the company would then guide the horse or Mari from house to house. When the guests and the people inside the house could hear the um, procession approaching, the doors of the house would be locked and barred against them. They'd only gain admission by convincing those within the power and wit of their Welsh verse. So if you couldn't speak Welsh, then automatically lose. (laughs) They would retell the trials and tribulations of their journey that night and would appeal to the people inside the house for cakes and ale and refreshments. Those inside would then answer that they hadn't got any, and the Mari would then challenge them to pick a worthy champion to represent them in the Battle of Verse. Usually the Battle of, of Wits would end in victory for the men bearing the Mari, and they would then be permitted to enter. Once inside, they would entertain, they would dance, they would tell poems, and earn their cake and ale. So as well as celebrating sort of abundance and looking forward to abundance, a lot of poems and rhymes at this time of year are meant to remind us that there are going to be those who will not be surrounded by warmth and family. And just as an example, in Colchester, on December the 1st, the town crier was go around the streets saying, cold December has set in, poor people's backs are clothed thin, the trees are bare, the birds are mute, a pint of pearl would very well suit. I've always wondered where the name Mary Lloyd comes from. <laughs> You're looking yeah. at me as the Welsh person in the group, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Is it just one of those things where, you know, maybe there was somebody called Mary Lloyd who, I'm, I'm going to say something horrible here, had the face of a horse and was very, like, uh, annoying, and they just decided to make it into a uh, into a tradition? It could have actually come from something like that i'm just having a look now sorry i'm, I'm googling whilst we're whilst we're recording I'm professional. Say, I think the image of the mari lloyd even those who are not particularly familiar with the custom will recognize uh this horse it, in the past few years i've seen it all over uh in the internet especially instagram and um, with lots of, i don't know if this is just my imagination but it seems to be growing in popularity so you now have the mari lloyd celebrated outside of Wales. Do you know much about that, Bethan? Well, I think a lot of it's to do with this revival of interesting folk horror. So I I often see the image of the Mary Lloyd alongside the Wicker Man in um, artwork and like people's websites. It's just become this sort of, um, and Krampus, it's this popular, this, this need people have now and this interest in the darker side of Christmas, which I think goes hand in hand with folk horror. It does sound like something out of The Wicker Man, this sort of skull that goes around the streets. So I think it's probably down to that. And I, whilst you've been talking, I have found out the name and where it comes from. So it is believed that it could mean Holy Mary, and that is a reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus, although most people in Wales will tell you it means the old grey mare. So. That's a good, a, a, as good an explanation as I expected to get. <laughs> 
Good old Wikipedia. It's, it's better than my annoying woman called Mary Lloyd with the face of a horse. <laughs> I quite liked yours. I was kind of hoping it would be something like that. So I have not only jumped out of Essex, I've jumped out of the country in some cases with the traditions I looked at, which I hope is okay, but I think you'll find most of these are very recognisable. So some of our most recognisable Christmas traditions date back further than recorded history. Pagans would bring branches of evergreen trees into their home during the bleak midwinter. Some believed this was to remind them that spring would come again, though there is another thought that this was to ensure that spring would come again. And in Scotland, uh, there was a tradition to light candles in their windows to welcome strangers, which it seems that the two customs could eventually have blended together. There was also another belief that I read about that said the um, lights in the Christmas trees represented the souls of the people who'd passed during the year, though I couldn't actually find that one anywhere else. It was quite a nice thought anyway. (laughs) Nice idea, especially after Halloween and All Souls Day, when you think of everybody that's passed. Yes. I mean, it's that time of year where everybody has gathered together, but you're obviously missing the people who you've lost in the year. So maybe that was a way of bringing them in with you. So furs were, uh, furs as in the tree, not furs as in the animal skin, (laughs) were also used in the Roman winter festival of Saturnalia, one of the most important festivals of Roman life. Saturnalia was celebrated by the Romans from the 17th to the 23rd of December each year. And it was one of the Roman customs to fill the Temple of Saturn with uh, fir trees. They also practiced gift giving, though this was usually of the gag variety. Saturnalia also saw a reversal of fortunes with slaves enjoying the banquets that their masters usually would. Gambling was also permitted and a king of Saturnalia was elected who could give out any order he uh, he liked. And they were mostly really stupid, like sing naked or dunk that man in cold water. I'm sure either of you probably have a few more suggestions. Sounds um, like an office Christmas party. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> and that in more modern times, we can see paralleled with the Lord of Misrule. Yes, that's exactly what they suggested, that the Lord of Misrule um, sort of dates back to this tradition. I find this so interesting that uh, this is a bit non-PC potentially, but um, whoever in the village was considered that with the lowest IQ (laughs) named uh, the the king for uh, this festive period. And whatever they suggested, the village had to... uh, adhere to so we had all kind of crazy requests and like you said this does seem to originate with Saturnalia this reversal of rules so rather than someone with wisdom leading people we've got someone uh, potentially lacking in wisdom and (laughs) they are calling the shots I just that that reversal of roles I find really fascinating I'm not entirely sure why Saturn was the reason that they would be doing this I did dig into it a bit, but it it gets so esoteric that it wasn't really sort of worth get going over too much. Um, and obviously it's beyond the point where anyone's alive who could explain it well. <laughs> but there was also a darker side to Saturnalia. So there were reports of lawlessness that this was a time where thieving, murder and assault was permitted. And there are also rumours of human sacrifice to the god Saturn. The human sacrifice 
was more rumoured, but it was certain that they would cremate the remains of Roman gladiators in the Temple of Saturn as an offering to Saturn. This sounds like the purge. It does sound a little bit like the purge. (laughs) So Christmas could have been more (laughs) purge-like. The Yule Log is another tradition I looked at. We can also date that back to the pagans. These days we enjoy a nice slice of Yule Log, which as a delicious chocolatey treat. But for the Celts, it was an important part of the 12-day midwinter cycle. They believed that the sun stood still during this time. And to ward off the darkness and give the sun back its strength, the Celts would burn an oak log continuously during this time. Once the log was almost completely burnt, it was kept to light the next year's fire. So they, this almost seems like a real fear, you know, the, it is getting darker and maybe that's, they thought that that meant the sun was losing its strength. So something that we enjoy today as a delicious treat to them was an act that they used to save their own skins, basically. Thinking these, I mean, we're sat here now, I don't know about you, but I'm sweltering under this blanket and I've got a little lamp with me, which I... That's probably kicking off so much heat. (laughs) Yeah. But it's so used to just being able to put on the heating and turn on the lights. It doesn't even enter our minds that we can't. You have to really think, don't you, about if we hadn't got electricity or gas central heating, what that would be like. I mean, there's been a few times where we've had total electrical blackouts. Do you remember a few years ago, there was a couple of, I think it was weeks maybe, where the electricity would go out for like a few days and it was just insane like in the 70s no no this was like a couple of years ago oh i don't actually actually i think i was still living at home so it might have been around sort of six seven years ago but this was in the middle of the countryside so we had no light at night we like it was amazing how dark it got we just couldn't i couldn't even read like there was nothing to like illuminate with apart from you know the candles we had which were sort of too dangerous to keep going all the time and the torches we owned at that point weren't particularly brilliant and I think we had one between three of us so we kept on having to like steal it off each other um so we could do anything I remember um I think it was in the 90s where there was that big blackout in New York like the entire city and I read that the police had so many people ringing in saying that there's something weird in the sky and it's because there was no light pollution and you could see see the Milky Way and they'd never seen it before. Well, none of us have really, unless you've gone like to the middle of nowhere and they were terrified. I think this is such an important point when we are considering uh, this period of Yule because like you said, many of us have never really experienced the hardships of winter. I mean, we have emotionally For example, waking up in the dark, leaving work in the dark, that definitely has an effect on our mind. I've never worried about not having enough food. Considering this, I think, is so important to understanding the heart of Christmas. And if we look through different cultures, we often see celebrations at this time of year, uh, pre-Christian, Indo-European. It's an instinct within us, it would seem, to place lights around to <laughs> to want to add a splash of colour in this really dark time of the year. I mean, it's, it's quite depressing for us now, but if we add these extra stresses, I think that makes a lot of sense. And here is something I think is really interesting. Last year, uh, when COVID was, oh, it's unbelievable to think it's been going on since March, 
but you might have noticed this too decorations went up about a month earlier than they normally do i was seeing them in october and I, perhaps you thought the same thing that this is clearly linked to people wanting to bring a bit of color a bit of joy a very bleak time i mean it was also boredom i was stuck in my house the whole time so mine definitely went up a month early <laughs> I noticed as well, a lot of people left them up. There's some people who's, um, especially the lights in their garden, especially where, where I live in, in the village, they've had them up all year. They didn't want to take them down. They just wanted to carry on that light in the dark. And not only putting them up early and taking them down late, really going to town on them. Yes. I noticed a kind of mania. <laughs> and the cabin I, I fever. For those who did this, because we can again see this part of us, um, we need we need that celebration in this really depressing time of year. This isn't anything new, um, and we can tap into this. And it's it's I think there's something nice that we're carrying this on from this really ancient time, and even now with um, social media and like we said, for us, for many of us, we don't have the same stresses, but this part of us still feels this need to gather together um, and to celebrate. So I'm now I'm looking at some more traditions. Uh, obviously, the main figure of Christmas is uh, Santa Claus or Saint Nick. So we know he's inspired by a a, Christ, a Christian saint or a Catholic saint. But the image that we see today, which is uh, everybody knows he's sort of the the red suit and the big beard with the the fur lining. We all know that as like the Coca-Cola company version of uh, Santa Claus. But it may be that they got their inspiration from a Scandinavian influence with the tradition of the Eulenissa. Eulenissa were traditionally small elderly men, often with full white beards, and they dressed in traditional farmer's garb, which consisted of a woolen tunic belted at the waist, knee breeches and stockings. There are also folk tales where the Eulenissa are believed to be shapeshifters and able to take the shape of far larger adult men. And other tales where the Nissa is believed to have one eye in the middle of their forehead. In modern Denmark, Nissa are often seen as wearing grey and red woolens with a red cap. Uh, Nissa are also thought to be skilled in illusions. Sometimes they're able to make themselves invisible, a bit like when Santa comes down the chimney and leaves his presents and then disappears or back up the chimney though one is very unlikely to get more than a brief glimpse of a Eulenissa no matter what he looks like Norwegian folklore states that he has four fingers and sometimes has little pointed ears and eyes that reflect the light like a cat so imagine that waking up in the middle of the night also according to uh, Scandinavian tradition the Nissa lives in houses and barns on farms and secretly acts as their guardian. So if the Nyssa is treated well, they protect the family and the animals from evil and misfortune. Um, they may also aid in chores and farm work. However, they're known to be short-tempered, especially when offended. And once insulted, they will usually play tricks, steal items, or they may maim and kill your livestock. Uh, so there is quite a dark side <laughs> to uh, these little Eula Nyssa. There was something actually I grew up knowing about because my my dad used to work for a Norwegian company and we still have today these little models of Nissa that we get out at Christmas. And like if you didn't know what they were, you would mistake them for Santa Claus. Can you put a picture of them on Instagram? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll find the one that my, my parents still have in their house. Since we did our rehearsal for this, I had a friend come over, actually one of our listeners, Elsa, uh, Nelly, my good friend Nelly. Hello, she's probably listening to us right now. Hi, Nelly. <laughs> Uh, she came over because I was I've not been very well and she wanted to cook for us because she knew that I couldn't make the walk to her house so she brought all her food over and utensils and cooked this most delicious fish stew and she said that actually it was the 6th of December which is actually when she came over is her traditional uh, St Nicholas Day which is from Bulgaria where um, St Nicholas in Bulgaria is um, a fisherman and families would gather around and they would cook this stew Everyone, again, gathering around to um, eat something in, in a time where pressed fish and um, different vegetables would be scarce. It is, again, you can see it all over the world, can't you? It's this need to come together. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> sorry, I got distracted by fish because you know how I feel about fish. I was just thinking about, oh, God, if I had to eat fish. <laughs> Well, this leads me to a, another figure from Christmas folklore. Um, they've recently seen a resurgence in interest due to the Hollywood treatment, but Krampus is anything but glitz and glam. Uh, folklorists and anthropologists believe Krampus has pre-Christian origins. However, he's most well known for accompanying St. Nick um, and doling out punishments to children who have misbehaved while St. Nick rewards the good children. I'm just saying if St. Nick was giving me fish, I'd feel like I was being punished. <laughs> and actually, if you go on Wikipedia and you type in Krampus, I love the image that comes up. So you've got you've got this poor child sitting down. He looks completely traumatised. And then you've got St. Nick dressed a bit like a bishop um, with the fish, the Catholic fish hat. And directly behind him, you've got Krampus. So they're playing like this weird good cop, bad cop. <laughs> if you just look at the picture, it's, it's really fascinating. It's, it's like, um, yeah, good cop, bad cop. We'll see what works on this kid. You go in with the candy. Um, and if that doesn't work, we'll, um, we'll take you away in a basket and you'll never be seen again. <laughs> I mean, in a more watered down version, that's like being a parent. <laughs> we'll try and bribe. If that doesn't work, we'll bring out the big guns. So... Um... With Krampus, his appearance is quite interesting. He's usually hairy, uh, brown or black, has cloven hooves, the horns of a goat, and a long pointed tongue that loin, uh, lolls out of his mouth, that which is, you know, has fangs inside of it. And if you think that sounds like the devil, well, you would be correct. It's thought that Christians co-opted the appearance of Krampus for their own stories about the devil. So what you're saying about, like, this, the bishop and... Krampus sort of appearing it is a little it like it's a little bit like you know the the holy and the unholy yeah is that is that kind of the uh, the other side so Krampus also sometimes carries uh rutin which are birch branches which he uses to whip the bad children if his hands aren't full enough he's also thought to carry the bad children away in his basket on his back for either eating or drowning uh, Krampus Nuck is still celebrated in the Alpine regions. With uh, this night, sees Kram Krampus dealing out coal um, and bundles of the birch twigs to the bad children, while Saint Nick also wanders around giving out uh, chocolates and sweets to the good children. I love the Krampus story. I think it's brilliant. I love the iterations that you see of him. There was that German one, which was um, the Lady Krampus who took away the bad men, the one we thought looked like one of our friends. 
It really does look like one of our friends. <laughs> yeah, Elsa sent across a rather evocative image, but yes, it was Krampus as a lady with some uh, blokes in her basket, if I remember, on her back, uh, which is a version of Krampus I've never seen before, but perhaps we'll put this in the show notes. Oh, definitely. It needs to be spread far and wide. She, she looks awesome. Yeah, she looks like a strong, confident Krampus lady. Um, <laughs> it really has been like a, research, like a popularity in the last two years. I mean, I think it was either last Christmas or the Christmas before, it was a Christmas special for um, Inside Number 9. It was a whole episode on, Cam- I was going to say campus, so why do you think that this darker side of christmas seems to be uh, becoming more popular as emblematic of these figures such as krampus and frau perkta maybe it's because people are getting a bit sort of worn down by the saccharine nature i mean the, the christmas movies the um the sort of need to spend so much as well um and i think again the revival in folk horror uh, is really kind of driving it as well. There were a couple of other things I found when I was researching into sort of world folklore that kind of then relates back into the the current traditions of uh, of Christmas now. So one of them was the tinsel spider, which is again I think a German story where a uh, a family was very poor and all they had was this sort of spindly tree, and a spider very nicely came to decorate it. Uh, with its web and by morning it turned into tinsel um, and then my brother told me of another story which I wish he hadn't now because it's kind of disgusting it's the Spanish Christmas poo log so this log is kept in a home I think it's a Catalan thing and the children uh, look after the log they put a little blanket over it to keep it warm and safe and they feed it a little bit every day and then on Christmas um, I think on Christmas Eve, they put it in the fire and they tell it to take a poo because it's going to poo out all their presents. I think that was on an episode of QI. There was a figure and it was called the Crapper. And there's, <laughs> um, there's some um, nativity scenes, I think in places like Italy, where there's this little figure with his pants down in the corner of the, the manger. Not the manger, sorry. Oh, <laughs> not yeah, li- I remember Not that. literally in with Jesus, but like in the corner <laughs> of the barn, just, yeah, relieving himself. Stealing forth treasure. <laughs> so it's not only the sort of dark, it's also the ridiculous that's having, you know, a, maybe a little bit of a resurgence right now. Ashley, did you say something about Frau Perchta? Yeah, so I was thinking about some of the other villains of this time of year because, like Elsa said, Krampus has become a bit of a superstar. But there is this theme of um, an all knowing entity who knows whether you've been good or bad and who will either reward you or punish you, uh, respectively. And Frau Pacht is another person. She is a witch, as far as I know. Perhaps you can uh, give us a bit more detail. But from my research, she this is, this is dark. She slit the bellies of children who'd been bad um, and stuffed their corpses with straw. So again, we've got this idea of someone who um, is somewhat creepily is watching you at all times. And if you don't just get a, a lump of coal if you're bad, like Santa, but um, that's the end of it for you. <laughs> no a nice bit of festive disembowelment. It's almost like the elf on the shelf, really, isn't it? Where the parents kind of make up these things to keep the kids in line, but also to, I. this is probably me just reading like some something terrible into it, but kind of just to like amuse themselves by 
sort of torturing their kids a bit. Well, it's also one of the themes of pedagogy, isn't it? So um, I briefly went into teacher training and I remember, so you have to be able to reward the child and encourage them, but also uh, to give discipline. And that can be a really difficult line to tread. And some, I think sometimes we can see this played out with these archetypes. So no matter what the child's temperament, there is... Um, there is a villain or a an entity who will be suitable. I think as well as a parent, if you can blame it on an entity, you can hold your hand up and go, it's not me, it's, yeah. <laughs> sort of take off the responsibility. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can carry on behaving like that, but, you know, you know what will happen. My dad used to tell me that if I didn't finish my dinner, the dinner witch would come and uh, eat all my food. So... <laughs> Talking of witches bearing gifts or otherwise, we also have Bifana. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. It may be Bifana. Someone can write in and tell us. Um, but she is an Italian being and she had the chance to meet the Holy Family in person uh, way back in the first century. So goes the story. Uh, the three kings stopped to ask for directions but she was just too busy sweeping the dust from her doorway to pay the glittering company any mind. Of course, as soon as they had rounded the bend, she had a change of heart and decided she really would like to bring a gift to the bright young baby. By the time she changed her clothes and baked a batch of Pefanino, sorry, Italian listeners, or, or Epiphany biscuits, the caravan had passed out of sight. And so she began her 2,000-year quest to locate and present her gifts to the baby Jesus. So, um, these days, the farmer simply pours the toys down the chimney into the polished boots and striped stockings of the children put out before they go to bed. How, uh, how does Bifana know what they want? Again, we have some of the same themes here. It is magic, of course. The children write their lists on slips of paper in front of the fireplace and let them waft up the chimney and into the sky where Bafana deftly catches them. Sometimes the old hag comes inside to get a good look at the children themselves. Uh, one of these nights, she hopes she'll finally meet up with the Christ child. In the meantime, however, she's not above taking the naughty ones and eating them, though this aspect of her character has been played down in recent years but definitely shouldn't be forgotten. In the 19th century, the children of the house used to dress a rag doll as a witch and set it in the window on Bafana's Eve. And today you can still buy carved or stuffed Bafanas at the Christmas markets in Italy. And I got that from The Old Magic of Christmas by Linda Radish. hope I'm pronouncing that right. She produced uh, a short book of lots of the darker customs of this time of year. And again, we're seeing this theme of, uh, like I alluded to earlier, uh, all-knowing entities that you've got to watch out for. Because she could give you gifts down the, down the chimney, into your stockings, uh, or she could eat you. So it's a bit of a gamble. I mean, it's, it's interesting that these stories come about like this, where you've got this sort of witch figure doing basically the job of what we, of what we know now as Santa Claus. Like, it makes you wonder, the story with the Holy Family, did the witch come first and then the Holy Family was later 
sort of inserted when Christianity expanded into the area and they sort of co-opted it like they did with the image of Krampus and the devil. It was something that I kept on coming across as well. Like there are older pre-history versions of all of these stories, pre-Christian versions, but then you get once Christianity comes along and kind of inserts itself into these uh, winter traditions, it becomes a bit murky about how they started. But we all seem to have the same type of traditions around this time of year. Yeah, we often see Christians co-opting gods and goddesses or stories that are well known by the public. And that way it makes it really hard to really resist it because we are, we're already familiar with these themes. And that reminds me of uh, St. Brigid or Brige, who uh, was a Irish goddess, although uh, she's been known in other parts as well, but who was then uh, co-opted into St. Brigid. Um, and now we have lots of wells uh, around Ireland, which are named after the saint, but we really know that she'd already been a, a major player for some time. So... Uh, we've looked at traditions of prehistory and early human recorded history. So now we're going to look at some Victorian traditions, since that is where we get most of our ideas about a traditional Christmas from. When one thinks of Christmas stories, the author of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow may not be the first person that springs to mind. However, in 1876, Washington Irving's book, Old Christmas, was published and is credited with creating Christmas as we know it today. Set in Bracebridge Hall, a location based loosely on a Holt family Jacobean mansion, Ashton Hall, the stories recounted the warm-hearted festivities that Irving experienced while visiting Abraham Bracebridge. And I'll just read a little section now where he describes what Christmas was like there. Of all the old festivals, however, that of Christmas awakens the strongest and most heartfelt associations. It is a beautiful arrangement, also derived from days of yore, that is festival which commemorates the announcement of the religion of peace and love and has been the season of gathering together of family connections and drawing closer again those bands of kindred hearts which the cares and pleasures and sorrows of the world are continually operating to cast loose of calling back the children of a family who have launched forth into life and wandered widely asunder once more to assemble about the paternal hearth that rally in place of affections there to grow young and loving again among the endearing mementos of childhood. This cheery description of the season is warm and heartfelt and a far cry from the spooky adventures of Ichabod Crane. However, there's a wonderful description of a scene he stumbled upon in a quiet corner of the mansion, away from all the festivities. And I'll just read what he says here. When I returned to the drawing room, I found the company seated around the fire, listening to the parson, who was deeply ensconced in a high-backed oaken chair, the work of some cunning artificer of yore, which had been brought from the library for this particular accommodation. From this venerable piece of furniture and dark wizened face so admirably accorded, he was dealing forth strange accounts of popular superstitions and legends of the surrounding country with which he had become acquainted in the course of his antiquarian researches. I'm half inclined to think that the old gentleman was himself somewhat tinctured with superstition, as men who live as a reclusive and a studious life and pore over black-letter tracts so often filled with the marvellous and supernatural. Irving goes on to share one of these stories, and the story goes like this. An effigy on a tomb of a crusader was said to walk about the churchyard on stormy nights, when the moon shone, bound to walk the earth until some wrong had been addressed or hidden treasure discovered. The parson then talks of an old sexton 
who had broken into the tomb one night in search of said treasure, only to be dealt a violent blow from the marble hand of the effigy. Some in the group laughed, yet even the stoutest man would later find themselves shy of venturing home alone, avoiding the path through the churchyard. We are told the parson reveled in tales shared by others in the group, tales of ghosts, goblins and fairies. This mixture of festivities and ghouls heavily influenced Charles Dickens, who attended a dinner in New York hosted by Irving and revealed his devotion to his writings by saying, I do not go to bed two nights out of seven without taking Washington Irving under my arm upstairs with me to bed. Quite a small man then, was he, Washington Irving? I think so, yeah. Little little Washington Irving underneath the arm. Like a hot water bottle. (laughs) And uh, talking of Dickens, this leads me on to thinking uh, more about Victorian times, where the family Christmas, as we think of it really today, was institutionalised by Prince Albert and Queen Vic, as too was the Christmas ghost story around the same time by our good old boy Charles Dickens. So shortly after the arrival of the Christmas tree into the British parlour, Dickens, with a Christmas carol, uh, like I said, institutionalised what could be called the modern spirit of Christmas, and which we still uh, very much celebrate today. Dickens subtitled his story, A Ghost Story for Christmas. And as we've mentioned, ghost stories look into that unextinguished primitivism of winter. But uh, rather than winter or the two-month Yule period that our Anglo-Saxon forebearers had, can you imagine two months of Yule? Instead, uh, Dickens narrows that down and focuses those feelings on one date, uh, which is often Christmas Eve for storytelling. Uh, many of you will already know that Christmas was not actually a big deal uh, in Dickens' time. So poor old Bob Cratchit having to work on Christmas Eve would have been pretty standard. And yes, like I said, Dickens associates uh, all of those wintry feelings now with a really specific idea of Christmas where one wouldn't be expected to work late on Christmas Eve and where you would naturally have all of Christmas Day off. Uh, The first stirrings of the tale can be found in a visit Dickens made to Manchester uh, a month before he began writing, in which he dwelt on the awful sights he'd seen among the juvenile population, uh, and he really stressed the desperate need for educating the poor. But he's linked that uh, with the idea for a Christmas Eve tale, which had helped to open the hearts of the prosperous and powerful towards the poor and powerless. Are there no workhouses, as uh, Scrooge famously asks when two gentlemen ask for a charitable donation? The 1840s were not merely hungry, but they were hard-hearted by today's terms. It was a philosophy that was actually embodied in Ebenezer Scrooge, who's, unlike uh, George Eliot's Silas Marner, is not merely a solitary miser, but uh, (laughs) he can be seen as the spirit of the age, if you like, in human or arguably inhuman form. Hard heads, hard hearts, good business. Uh, I didn't know this, but during this time, uh, many lower class children really worked like slaves. Six months after Christmas Carol was published, the 1844 Factories Act decreed that nine to 13 year olds could only, uh, (laughs) and the word is only, work nine hours a day, six days a week, And this was regarded as this momentous, humane reform. 
So um, get your get your minds around that one. What were they doing before? Yeah, the fact that this was seen as a celebration is um, is definitely cause for thought. Why were they wanted for this work, these poor children? Well, children were cheap labour, but more importantly, their poor little fingers were small and dexterous. However, the machines, uh, of course, were dangerous, and there were many crippled tiny tins by the hundreds in Manchester, which was called the workshop of the world at this time. So, um, <laughs> despite A Christmas Carol being famously uh, rather saccharine, uh, with this context, if we think of the child labour, the line, are there no workhouses, uh, it does tug at the heart a bit when we remember this context. So Dickens makes his social point um, by employing the use of a trio of spectres and the ghosts are imported from folklore and legend, not the Christian Gospels. Uh, my favourite ghost, the, or my favourite spirit, rather, the, the famous spirit of Christmas, Christmas present, was designed by the artist John Leach, I believe, and he clearly draws on classic pagan iconography, this um, big jolly man feasting in a hall at a time of deprivation. If you think about all that food that surrounds him and his classic illustrations, um, a seasonal wreath around his head, that's such a warm and inviting image. Um, he, to me, he's kind of channeling a bit of a, a younger, more middle-aged Father Christmas there. A little bit like the green man as well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Of course, we've got the terrifying spirit of Christmas future, this um, wraith-like Harry Potter, demented-like creature pointing to the grave with the skeletal thing. I'm pointing at my webcam, <laughs> pointing to the grave that awaits us all. Um, it is, it's very chilling. We watched but, the Muppets Christmas Carol version of it last night. And you know what? It's my favourite version. <laughs> and the Ghost of Christmas Present, it really does look like Santa. When I watched it when I was younger, I thought that was Santa. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever seen Scrooged? The Bill Murray version. I yes. have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting on my list all, all of the films I want to rewatch as well as we're talking. The Ghost of Christmas Present used, I mean, not present, part, uh, future, used to absolutely terrify me in that film. Yeah. And they did a good job of, like, updating it to, like, the 80s to make that context of, like, terror with the, I think he was made out of screens or something at one point. There was another Christmas thing that came out in the 80s, and not a lot of people know it. I, I, I must have talked to you both about it before, but if anyone can get hold of it and watch it, I highly recommend it. It's called Bernard and the Genie. It was a made-for-television film, and it had Alan Cumming as a modern-day Aladdin, uh, Lenny Henry as the genie, and Rowan Atkinson as the baddie. And he played this art collector who was greedy, miserly, and when um, Alan Cum Cumming's character wanted to um, give some of the money they found off this really expensive painting back to the people who owned it, he fires him, he loses everything. And then he finds this lamp. But it's this idea of this figure of miserliness at Christmas. Uh, you can see it in even like modern day things. Yeah. And with Christmas, it's the promise of renewal, isn't it? It's this clean slate of, of the new year, this idea that you can begin again. And Dickens shows that even a miser like Scrooge, where there's an um, almost endless trail of misery and destruction, uh, even he can start again. So as, as the book none too uh, delicately makes, if, if it's not too late for him, then it's not too late for you. 
and he's tying this idea of a, a moral renewal uh, with the beginning of a new year that you can turn the page that you can um, you can start again you see it a lot with the church going at this time of year i grew up um, Catholic and I remember the church would always be extra full at Christmas and there would be extra confessionals beforehand lots of people rushing to as you say wipe the slate clean before Christmas. Yeah and again it's this, this idea of, of coming together we seem to further need to uh, to join together to have something in common and even um, I went to many people in Colchester will have done this too to go to the art centre on Christmas Eve, where Anthony Roberts, who um, who runs the art centre, reads a Christmas carol by heart without looking at the book at all. He uh, he remembers every word, and even that to me, well, perhaps especially because it is in a deconsecrated church, but that to me almost had this feeling of Christmas Eve. Everyone was turning to each other afterwards, very joyfully to wish each other a happy Christmas, and it reminded me of that same feeling after Christmas Eve's. Uh, a midnight mass service after mm. that final um, the final notes rang out that people they, they turned to each other in a way that you don't really see the rest of the year and I'm not sure we necessarily have an equivalent for so even if you're not Christian uh, you can still appreciate this so the story I've looked at is almost the antithesis um, to the Christmas carol it's um, about what happens when people don't come together so the story begin, begins with a group of friends telling um, ghost stories around a fire on Christmas Eve. And when one of them has recounted the tale of a boy awoken by an apparition, the party deems the story shocking for having affected a person so young, to which one friend delivers the famous line, if the child gives the effect, another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? The Turn of the Screw by Henry James was written in 1898 at the end of the Victorian era, set in our own great good county of Essex in the fictional village of Bly. Many people focus on the themes of youth and innocence and indeed the loss of it in the story. However, it is the women of the story that reflect the changing social landscape of this period. Um, it is a time when women were gaining more power over their own lives. James's female characters are not only in charge of themselves, but Mrs. Gross and the governess are the only two living adults involved in the upbringing of the young children, Flora and Miles. Like Dickens, James uses the Christmas ghost story to reflect on the socio-political circumstances of the time. Though Christmas isn't the main theme of the story, it is given as a shorthand for the reason of the telling. And to readers from this time period, the isolation of the characters and the deaths would be familiar themes to them in the winter months. The extract I've chosen is perhaps the moment where we can really call the governess's sanity into question and her position of authority over her much-loved charge, Flora, completely crumbles. Just as in the churchyard with Miles, the whole thing was upon us. Much as I had made of the fact that this name had never once been between us, been sounded, the quick smitten glare with which the child's face now received it fairly likened my breach of the silence to the smash of a pane of glass. It added to the interposing cry, as if to stay the blow that Mrs. Gross, at the same instance, uttered over my violence the shriek of a creature scared or rather wounded which in turn, within a few seconds, was completed by a gasp of my own as I seized my colleague's arm. She's there, she's there. 
Miss Jessel stood before us on the opposite bank, exactly as she stood the other time. And I remembered strangely, as the first feeling now produced in me, the thrill of joy at having brought on a proof she was there. And I was justified. She was there and I was neither cruel nor mad. She was there for poor, scared Mrs. Gross, but she was there most for Flora. And no moment of my monstrous time was perhaps so extraordinary as that which in I consciously threw her out with the sense that pale and ravenous demon as she was, she would catch it and understand. An inarticulate message of gratitude, she rose erect on the spot to my friend with a sense that pale and ravenous demon as she was, she would catch it and understand it. An inarticulate message of gratitude. She rose erect on the spot my friend and I had lately quitted, and there was not in all the long reach of her desire an inch of her evil that fell short. This first vividness of vision and emotion were things of a few seconds, during which Mrs. Gross's dazed blink across to where I pointed struck me as a sovereign sign that she too at last saw, just as it carried in my own eyes, precipitatedly to the child, the revelation then of the manner in which Flora was affected startled me. In truth, far more than it would have done to find her also merely agitated, for direct dismay was of course not what I expected. Prepared and on her guard as our pursuit had actually made her, she would repress every betrayal, and I was therefore shaken on the spot by my first glimpse of the particular one for which I had not allowed to see her without convulsion of her small pink face, not even feign to glance in the direction of the prodigy I had announced, but only instead of that turn at me, an expression of hard, still gravity, an expression absolutely new and unprecedented that had appeared to read and accuse and judge me this was a stroke that somehow converted this little girl herself into the very presence that could make me quail. I quailed even though my certitude that she thoroughly saw and never greater in that instant in the immediate need to defend myself. I called it passionately to witness. She's here, you little unhappy thing. There, 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 there. And you still, and you see her as well as you see me. Ooh, that was a, uh, some high Victorian for you, which is incredibly difficult to read. It was but, a mouthful, bless you. Oh, it was, uh, it was more than a mouthful. Um, it was very- really enjoyable. I was just getting into that. <laughs> You'll have to read the rest. <laughs> um, but for me, that illustrates how these characters, so isolated, have now started to turn inwards and away from each other. And this ultimately leads to tragedy um, for the governess and for her charges. And having reflected on that story, I'd like to tell you a tale from old from Essex's own castle, Headingham. In the early 1800s, a strange turn of events took place at a Christmas Eve celebration. The owners of Castle Headingham, at that time the Ashhursts, were hosting and whilst the guests were carousing, enjoying their benefactor's generosity, someone slipped away. Her name was Poll or Polly last name Miles. Some in the village still believe she was a witch. But unlike most reported witches of the time, she was neither old nor ill or had some physical condition that made her different from the rest. She was young and reportedly beautiful, 
And it seems though the village had set their sights upon Paul as being an oddball since her arrival with her father and without her mother. She had grown up without incident, but she had still grown up strange and idle, preferring to be outdoors and leaving her father to attend all of the housework, which for that time period was very unusual for a young lady. <laughs> She's also said to have had a lover, which would surely make her an object of scorn amongst her community at that point in time. Paul's story exists in novella form. It has been heavily romanticised, though, by someone whose name I'm about to completely mangle, uh, Lady Margaret Manjedi. She told the story after hearing it from a woman in the village. There is some debate whether Paul's story has been altered over the years by the influence of Margaret's writing. However, when Paul's story was first published in 1914, there was still living at least one man of around 80 years of age who remembered her grave being dug. Perhaps the partygoers believed she had gone off with her unnamed lover because there does not seem to have been any great cause amongst the village to find Paul after her disappearance. Though there could be another explanation for that, as she apparently appeared to her father and several other people soon after her disappearance, as pale as the dead, with her hair floating around her like a cloud in the sky. When winter passed and the waters of the canal had thawed, a terrible discovery was made. Paul's body resurfaced and she was recognised immediately by her scarlet cloak. Whether it was because Paul was a supposed witch or the villagers believed she had taken her own life, having argued with her lover, she was not granted a burial in church grounds. Instead, she was buried at crossroads. For many years afterwards, the villagers avoided the site of her grave, claiming that she walked there still. However, flowers appear on her grave twice every winter, once on Halloween and again at Christmas when it is believed she met her end. Her spirit is said to have been spotted on the castle battlements to this day. Pole not only shares her end with Miss Jessel from the turn of the screw, but her youth and beauty, and the idea that she may have been done in by a lover, or at least an admirer. Even the indifference of her tragic death and the derision from the community to which she belonged is uh, connected to that tale of the turn of the screw. If Christmas is a time where we come together and help each other through the darkest months, both short stories show a concern for the ones who have become isolated or scorned by their communities. It's so similar to when you think of, especially in Essex, the witch trials, any woman who, and some men, mainly women though, who stood out, were slightly independent, might have had spoken their own thoughts. It was just been so easy to be condemned as a witch. And it's, it's, a very, it's almost like the similar witch hunt. And this was long after witch hunts um, stopped taking place. This was, you know, at the, uh, it was the early 1800s. So this is the real sort of start of the Victorian era. So a point, a point where we think, um, you know, civilization uh, between sort of people in their own community is, uh, you know, starting to progress. It just goes to show this continuing idea of anyone who's slightly odd in your community or who stands out in, in any way are not even odd but perhaps they're non-conforming uh, to that particular time and how it would potentially have been dangerous exactly winter with uh, you know the lack of resources is probably the most dangerous time of the year at that period of time and earlier and both of those stories really I felt were warnings about what happens when somebody becomes uh whether by their own choice or by outside influence becomes isolated 
Yeah. And I mean, this is a slightly broader theme, but we often, <laughs> um, there's, if, if we think evolutionary, this idea that you don't want to be outside of the group, uh, not today we feel that awkward feeling, even though we know that we'll survive this idea. Um, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be ostracized. And for our ancestors, it would have been um, far more challenging. And in uh, into the far distant past, it would have certainly have meant death. So even in more modern times, uh, with these two tales, we still see uh, this vein present. And I have a slightly um, mysterious story of a, or rather an account of a spooky tower in Hertfordshire. So Cold Christmas Church is situated in Sundridge, Hertfordshire, along Cold Christmas Lane. Isn't that a lovely name? The church is actually called Little St. Mary's Church, but due to it being situated near Cold Christmas Lane, it got given the nickname Cold Christmas Church. So the church was demolished in 1853 when a new parish church was built nearby. However, the church uh, stone tower still remains and you can visit that today. So the church dates back to 1086 and was intended for private family use only. However, there are many rumours of the church being built on a north-south alignment instead of the traditional east-west. Many medieval churches were built this way and is said to be the sign of the devil, which is why it was uh, later demolished. So goes the story. So even though the church was demolished, the graveyard still remains along with that church tower. Um, if you visit, you'll see the gravestones have fallen sadly into much disrepair. Uh, many of the headstones are fallen or broken. But there are reports of a mausoleum in the graveyard and that mass burial sites lie under where the old church once stood. Uh, it's said that many graves belong to young children. And this is due to one winter where there was a particularly extreme cold weather weather pattern at Christmas, which led to the mass graves. Uh, due to these tales, this spot attracts uh, many people interested in the supernatural from all over. Most paranormal activity reports come from in or around that remaining church tower. Uh, sounds of growling, children screaming and shrieking, and the, and I quote, Thick sense of an evil presence are just a few of the reports. A figure in black has said to be spotted on several occasions around the graveyard. We don't know who this figure is, but they've been spotted by multiple different people. And probably the most famous account is in the 70s. In 78, a woman walking up to the church tower found herself walking towards a marching army coming from the church door and they progressed right through her. She doesn't sound terrifying at all. It's always the 70s, isn't it? <laughs> There's something about the 70s, for sure. I wish that I'd been, uh, been around there. <laughs> and the LSD. <laughs> and the satanic panic. You'd love a bit of uh, the old satanic panic. The idea of these children at Christmas, though, having starved, um, or what was it, they, they froze to death or something? They allegedly froze to death. Why I had a question, why was it only children? Not sure. But it's again that idea like with Dickens that at this time of year there should be some sort of help for uh those less fortunate. <laughs> yeah. And if you go on YouTube, uh, if uh, those who are interested, lots of people have made the journey to the church and they've documented it as a kind of a amateur ghost hunting uh, extravaganza. 
uh, it's, it is really interesting to see just because it's in the middle of nowhere and you suddenly come upon this tower. And I think even if you didn't have any anything odd happen there, these stories rattling around in your head. And uh, yes, the quote of a thick evil presence, I think it is, um, would probably influence you, especially if you weren't there uh, as, the, as the sun was beginning to, uh, to leave us. <laughs> No, I'm just thinking about a, a thick, as in T-H-I-C-C, evil presence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I've chosen a church for my story as well, but I returned to the county of Essex, which is mine and Elsa's sort of wheelhouse. So when you think of most haunted places in Britain, there are many that claim to be this, one of which is Borley Rectory. However, there is an often forgotten place whose list of paranormal incidents certainly make it the most mysterious. And this place is Langenhoe Church. And the series of events that took place was recorded in the journal of the Reverend Merriweather. I just love that name, doesn't it? It already sounds like you're going to have a good tale. He was originally from the north of England and had never before encountered paranormal activity or anything strange. But soon after his arrival, he began to experience some very strange things. At first, they didn't seem that incredible it was something like things would be moved around his case for example or his valets i think i'm saying that right valets valets it was a small case that carried his vestments and books whenever he entered the church he couldn't unlock it it would shut itself he wouldn't be able to get in and yet as soon as he stepped off church property and the churchyard he could then unlock it easily this was the first thing that happened and things started ramping up after that so on the 20th of September, 1937, he was alone in the church. It was a very still autumn day without a breath of wind. And yet the west door slammed shut violently and with such a force that the whole church shook. So it wasn't just a slight breeze. This, there was a lot of force behind this. And this happened several times. And as I said, he recorded all these incidents in his diary. And a lot of it is your typical sort of poltergeist activity. So, as I said, movement of objects, the sound of thudding noises, candles being blown out and people feeling a tap on their shoulder. And it was quite a lot of phenomena at the beginning when he moved in, but then there was a lull. Um, so there was nothing reported for about several years. And then in 1950, things started up again. So while the rector was in the vestry, he heard the voice of a young woman singing. And it was coming from the west end of the church when nobody else was in there. And then when the sound of the singing died away, there was the sound of a man's heavy footsteps heard coming up the aisle. The rector quietly entered the church and found that the footsteps stopped immediately and he found the nave empty. A week later, the vicar arrived at the church to find two workmen crouched by the west door and they were looking through the keyhole. They asked him to come and listen to see what he thought of it. And they again heard singing coming from the empty church. They searched the church afterwards, even climbing the staircase to the tower, but found it was deserted. The rector once stood at the head of the church in one of the masses and he saw the figure of a woman in late medieval dress standing at the end of the church and actually went through a wall and vanished. This wasn't the only time he saw a woman in the church who shouldn't have been there. He reports a lot in his journal of seeing a woman in a cream dress and he thinks she's the one that's singing. He would often practice on the organ and would sense a presence behind him to turn and see at the corner of his eye this woman in cream. And since we have actually rehearsed this, and I told this story to the girls before, but since I actually told you the story, I found another thing that happened to this poor reverend. 
bless him, it must have startled him. He went to um, have a look in what would have been the rectory house. We didn't actually live in the rectory, but he visited it. And when he was upstairs, he looked out the window and there was a wonderful view right down to Mersey Island. So this was right on the coast, right next to Mersey Island and the Strood. And as he turned from the window, he found himself very briefly embraced by a naked woman who was feeling rather frisky. Ooh la la. Ooh la la indeed. And I don't know what made him think it, but he said she was sure that she had amorous intentions. Oh my goodness. Maybe that was just wishful thinking on his part. Might have been. <laughs> she disappeared as soon as she appeared. And I think that's the close, uh, close encounter he had with one of the um, apparitions. A close encounter of the saucy kind. The close encounter of the saucy kind. Perhaps it'd been a long winter. <laughs> yeah, it was a lonely life there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think one of the creepiest things that happened was actually on Christmas Eve, which is what drew my attention to this story, as we are thinking of Christmas. So he was walking up the nave towards the chancel, and from out of nowhere, this vast form appeared, this shadowy form glided across the nave and disappeared into the pulpit. And he saw, the Reverend describes actually the figure as, um, he thought it was a man and possibly dressed in a tweed suit. So quite considering he described it as this mass to then describe him as wearing a tweed suit. Don't quite quite what to make of that. But as all this um, activity um, was going on and he started recording more and more, he began to ask the villagers about the church itself and he found that many of them for years and years even before he got there would tell would consider the place as haunted and actually there's a local legend of uh, a lady in black who walked the church at night and there's actually an account of two sisters in 1908 who reported seeing the figure of a woman dressed like a nun moving between all the headstones in the church before going inside and considering how close it is to the strood in mersey island i wonder if this has had any bearing on the story of the lady in black do you reckon Ooh, interesting. A bit like the coach crash I discussed in the Rose episode. Yeah. On the, the Strood Causeway. Is it right that the Lady in Black is set around that location? Well, the, the filming's happened around that location, but I'm not sure where they set it. I think she took influence from it, didn't she? Yeah. The description of the area fits perfectly with that in the book. So, Well, not just the seeing of the figure, but perhaps all the sinister things that happened afterwards. I mean, Lang and Ho, not just the church and not paranormal, has had horrific things happen throughout the years. So, for example, three people have committed suicide inside the walls of Langenhoe Hall. Um, nine children of the then owner then died, and their mother died shortly afterwards. There was somebody who jumped out of a plane um, over the English Channel who actually owned the estate, so he completed suicide by jumping out of a plane. And there was someone else who also owned the estate who failed to make a success there and drowned themselves in a sluice pipe. And then there's a particularly horrible thing that happened. This was not long after the First World War. There was a really bad snowstorm that struck Langenhoe and there was a herd of horses that were going to be taken across the continent. But with the snowstorm and um, the chaos that ensued, a whole herd of these horses rampaged through the village and caused the death of many of the drovers and some of the villagers, and many people have actually um, completed suicide at the spot where the herdsmen died. So it's like this epicenter for tragedy. Um, the rectory has also had its share of misfortune. Um, there's been a lot of very weird accidents there um, that resulted in deaths and other things. I mean, just this—I've got a list here. 
And I can't, I, I'll be here till New Year reading it out. I'm just trying to pick uh, out the, one of the, the black spot. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the church is now demolished. Um, you can still see the gravestones there. And um, the Reverend Merriweather has actually died. He died in 1965. And a lot of these events, apart from what was in his journal, have now, you know, faded into folk tales and stories over a pint at the pub. But for me, I mean, everything that happened in this list of things that happened, this is one of the most haunted places I've ever heard about. And I mean, I, as I said, I've got a list here. I won't go into it all. I might put some more on social media afterwards. There's even this wonderful thing that happened. So it sounds so unusual that a reverend did this, but the person who wrote this book, which I got this information from, sat down with the reverend and did a, well, they called it a planchette board. It was a Ouija board. They sat down and did this Ouija board and there was a, they had a conversation with a spirit and I'll put the conversation in um, either our Instagram feed or on Twitter because it's it's a good read. So it was actually recorded? Yeah, they wrote, well, they didn't record it, but they wrote it down as it was spoken. Yeah, we were thinking that maybe in another episode we'd do like a play or we'd, <laughs> we'd give different voices and we're, we're going to be drawing straws as to who plays the spectre. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Do you know what? How, how good would this be as a Netflix series? Yeah, I can really imagine it as a sort of midnight mass uh, series. Did you watch that? It was brilliant. Midnight mass. Was, yeah, I really liked it. Absolutely loved it. It's been ages since I've enjoyed a series that much. I mean, it definitely had some flaws, but what I loved is the sense of place that it had. This um, this coastal community. I really invested in it. I really felt as if it as if it were real in some way. It was very binge worthy. <laughs> it was. It was. And I think it's that kind of, they isolated it in this community that which really made the story so, like, it really captured you because it's it stuck it to a, a time and place um, with no outside influence, um, which you could imagine of many of these places back in the, uh, the good old days where they're not heavily influenced by outside sources. And I think that's what folk, folk horror is really drawing on. This isolated community. Often with a newcomer. Yeah, with a newcomer. And almost this sense that you, you can't escape. And just, uh, I mean, in Midnight Mass, they were surrounded by water and you had to get the ferry over um, to the mainland. That was wonderfully represented. But yeah, this, you need this tightness of a community and the feeling that everyone's watching. Have you seen Apostle? <laughs> No, I tried to watch it. I'm, I'm really sorry, but I got about halfway through and I completely lost my attention for it. I, I actually quite enjoyed it, but I, I get where you're coming from. It's a slow burn to start with, but it's very folk horror. There's sort of like this outsider coming to a village to find his sister, this weird cult atmosphere, and it's on an island you can't escape, even though I know it was filmed in Margam down the road from where I used to live. I had the wonderful Michael Sheen in it. I really want to be the next Doctor. I mean, that, again, sorry... Just thinking of Doctor Who, that's another tradition. Doctor Who always comes on now on Christmas Day. Yeah, it's a Doctor Who Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> well, there's um, definitely some themes that keep cropping up again and again, aren't there? Yeah, and I think we really lose out if we completely eradicate this darker side of Christmas. And as I asked Elsa earlier when I said, why do you think Krampus is growing in popularity? I think I think we've kind of answered it in this episode that we perhaps need some of these darker themes to be represented, and if we completely remove them and have it as this um, solely as this very colourful, child-friendly time, 
that um, it's like having too much pudding or something that after a while you just want a bit of a uh, bit of mains or some meat or something you need something else for the palate yes yeah and um i think the jolt of fear and dread in stories such as we've briefly looked at here they make the christmas lights glitter even more brightly you need that darkness with which the the light can shine out of that's a really lovely way of putting it actually yeah you see it in everything it, you know when you described it then i thought that sums up home alone <laughs> this like saccharine sort of uh, tale of home invasion well, it's a little bit like the darkness is the journey to get to the the sort of sweet side of it. Like you get through all of that. And in the end, it's just you and your family eating too much and uh, opening presents and having a jolly good time. But you've before that, you've got to go through the pain of shopping at Christmas for making that massive meal. You know, all the family squabbles and all of that. It's a little bit sort of representative of what we do go through even today. <laughs> just to get to the nice yeah, side. We've got our own uh, Christmas horrors uh, today with the in-laws and such. <laughs> but yeah, like I said earlier, it's this idea of, of the darkness of winter with the promise of renewal, uh, the solstice, the returning of the sun. I think we can find that represented within our decorations, as Elsa uh, spoke about, but also the tales where we've got this, um, the protagonist is potentially moving through quite a dark landscape or having challenges. But um, that there is hope at the end of it. I think that's what makes the best tale. I think a lot of our ghost Christmas stories are actually moralistic. I mean, they're all trying to teach you something for their time period that they found important. I don't think that's really necessarily true about ghost stories or ghost tales that you hear at other times of the year. They're not necessarily a moral, a moralistic story, whereas the Christmas ones always have something at the end that sort of redeems yeah there's like redemption at the end and even with mr james i mean i didn't know much about ghost stories for christmas until a few years ago uh, i'd heard of ghost stories for christmas the bbc series but it was relatively recently that i got into that and this art oh, the sense of atmosphere and dread that's created in these um it's normally some poor academic who <laughs> who wants to learn more and goes on this quest and um, always or, or often gets more than he, he bargained for. But that's, our, um, you know, in that famous scene where he's running along the beach, you know the one I mean, and, and he's being followed, just the, this sense of this um, quite bleak landscape with um, with all this, this history um, and the undead following him. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's so well done in, in a filmic sense. There, um, that bit actually on the beach, it could be two M.R. James stories. I mean, a whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, and a warning for the curious. Yeah. Both, both see an academic clutching something, running across a beach, being chased by a spectre. I, I love need it. to read more M.R. James, I've just decided. <laughs> well, I've just got the box set, uh, Ghost Stories for Christmas, um, that's been restored by the, by the BFI. So um, it's still in its cellophane wrap and I'll... Um, I'll, I'll binge it across uh, the festive period. I'm really looking forward to it. So yeah, I recommend um, anyone who's interested. It's currently at quite a reasonable price on a well-known site. Um, I won't mention just a little unknown bookseller. Because <laughs> they'll make us pay money if we mention them. Probably <laughs> a little, just a little shop. Yeah, yeah it's it's a very really is the Scrooge of our times. 
<laughs> Maybe we add it to our um, sleepover we're going to have with the chocolate Guinness cake. Ooh, done. Do you know what I'm looking forward to this Christmas? Whatever Mark Gattis comes up with for this year's Christmas ghost story. Yeah, we yeah. are the Mark Gattis Appreciation Club. Yeah, he has done, he's doing the miso tint, isn't he? Which is MR James. Oh, is he? Yeah. I didn't know he was doing an MR James this year because what was it last year? It was the was it the radio host or the? I think so. That was brilliant. I really liked that one. Good old Mark. Good old Mark. The, um, the ghost story tradition has made its way into some modern times, uh, preserved in the unlikely places of Christmas lyrics, which um, we spoke about when we were uh, organising this this chat previously. Um, it's the most wonderful time of the year which talks about scary ghost stories. Scary ghost story. Sorry about my singing there. <laughs> I had never noticed that before until I began investigating this. Do you so know, I hear it. Now, now you mentioned it to me. I, every, I'm hearing that song a lot and I'm hearing the scary ghost stories every single time now and I hadn't really realised it before. Yeah, so even though many of us don't, like I had said earlier, don't associate Christmas uh, with, with these darker themes. There's little breadcrumb trails for us to find even today. I mean, we hope you've enjoyed joining us around the fire with a glass of wine and some of these stories. If you want to, I mean, there's two podcasts here, so Folkways and Eerie Essex. If you've got any of your own Christmas traditions or stories that you want to share, you can find both of us on Instagram and Twitter. And we'd love to hear them. Um, you can also email Eerie Essex at eerieessexpodcast at gmail.com if you have a story you'd like to share with us. We love any listener stories. We've already done one, but we want to do more. And Ashley, do you have a contact email for anyone? Yes, please email folkwayschannel at gmail.com. Me and Elsa cover Essex. Ashley covers everywhere else. And we, we wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas, Yule, Saturnalia, Krampusnacht and the like. Whatever you're doing, do it well. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.